From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why every C-suite officer should care about plastic waste, a checking account that heals the planet, why regeneration is generating business buzz, and behind the scenes at Generation Green New Deal. We're talking about a revolution this week on 350. It's September 11th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy is enjoying some time off this week. So joining me is Green Biz's Shauna Rappaport, Vice President and Executive Director of Verge. Hey, Shauna. Hey, Joel. It's uh, good to hear your voice. We I miss you. We don't get to see each other all that often. And how are you? I'm doing all right. I've I've got to admit, it feels like we are living in a bit of a dystopian world these days here in California. Oh God, Woke yeah. up this morning and it feels like 10 p.m. with an orange, burnt orange sky. Yeah, it's been that way uh, for several days this week, and uh, it feels kind of apocalyptic. I mean, you know, this <laughs> the pandemic and the social unrest and recession and now fires. Yeah, I was reflecting. I heard a wild statistic just the other day that early September, we've now broken the record here in California for square acres scorched already. And it's not even technically our fire season. I was reflecting, remembering back to Verge last year, late October, when we were convening our Grid Resilience Summit in partnership with the state of California and fires erupted across the state. And we, you know, many of the utility and state policy folks who were going to be participating couldn't come. And here we are early September in a, in a very climate changed world already. Yeah, and it's just really fascinating because, you know, you think about, well, COVID advice is stay home. If you leave, wear a mask and stay six feet apart. Uh, But because of the fire, be prepared to evacuate. Oh, but there's a heat wave there was earlier in the week. So go outside and open the windows. But because of the air quality, you have to stay inside and don't open the windows uh, and and probably wear a different kind of mask outside, N95 as it's called. Oh, and by the way, you know, if there's an earthquake, you have to stay inside and get under a strong table. (laughs) So it's like, wow, you know, what, what do we do here? Uh, is this our future or is this just a uh, unfortunate present? Um, uh, it's almost scary to ponder the former and, and you sort of hope it's just just a moment, but I'm afraid it isn't. Yes, me as well. Yeah, but enough of that. Uh, you are knee deep into Verge, uh, this amazing conference that's coming up at the end of October. Talk a little bit about, for people, first of all, who don't know what Verge is about, give us the the pitch and then um, a little uh, summary of what's coming up. Yes. Well, it would be my pleasure. I live and breathe Verge daily, nightly probably too. Um, But yes, in speaking of this wild upside down world that we are living in, um, 
were we are like everyone else shifting shifting to online. Uh, the event will be taking place for a full week, full five days of programming late October, the 26th through 30th. And, you know, our mission really with Verge is to accelerate the clean economy. For those who aren't familiar with it, um, you know, we focus really on what we see as five of the most influential and dynamic markets undergirding the clean economy. So we, we actually have five concurrent conferences taking place as part of the event focused on energy, transportation, circular economy. Last year, we launched our Carbon Verge Carbon Conference, which really focuses not just on the emissions mitigation side of things and reduction, but true sequestration. Um, and on a somewhat related note, this year, launching our now fifth concurrent conference, Verge Food, focused on sustainable food systems. Um, so I'm incredibly excited. You know, the move to online opens up a much larger global audience. We're expecting 15,000 registrants from around the world. It certainly increases accessibility. And, you know, while nothing is going to replace bumping elbows, you know, as you expect going to conferences, running into old friends at lunch, um, you know, we're really working hard to, to serve the community and, and the clean economy movement more broadly in what we're building. Yeah, and uh, 15,000 may seem like a lot, but our Circularity Conference uh, last month, we had just over 14,000. So, uh, and that was our first uh, fully digital event. And, um, and so, yeah, I think we can, I think we're going to do that and probably, probably some more. But, you know, how, how does an online conference, what are you feeling about sort of the things we'll be able to do? Um, obviously, we can have uh, people who are, would, wouldn't otherwise have flown to San Jose, where the event was supposed to be in California. Uh, but what are some of the other things that we can do that you're excited about? Yeah, well, you know, in many ways, it'll be somewhat similar in that we're going to have a keynote program. Um, we'll have breakouts where you can dive deeper into specific topics. There'll be networking features. We're using this really neat online event platform called Hopin. Um, you know, in terms of keynotes, you'll see the folks that you come to know and love and expect at Green Biz events, Lisa Jackson, Gina McCarthy, both of whom you'll be interviewing, you know, Bill McKibben, the big names. We'll also have a lot of folks that you may not know yet, but uh, we certainly hope you'll love. Uh, Gitanjali Rao, for example, is a rock star, 14-year-old innovator committed to solving the world's greatest problems. Um, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who's working on ocean equity, uh, the 30-year-old uh, mayor of Stockton, Mayor Tubbs. So we're going to have a lot of really um, inspiring, informative talks as part of our keynote program. And, you know, across the whole event, one one sort of mindset that we're really orienting to right now, we get that we are just a, what is it, command tab away from people's email, uh, competing with kids at home. So, you know, we're working really hard to to not just bring you inspiring and informative programming, but to, to do it in a way that's going to keep folks engaged, to keep things fast paced, um, quick moving, um, high impact, and, and hope to keep people engaged as much as much as possible and really deliver content and experiences that are going to be of great value. And Shauna, there's also Verge Accelerate. Uh, this is a, the pitch competition about from startups. So what's going, going to be happening this year? 
Yes. Well, we are expanding on this sort of cornerstone program of Verge. I mentioned our five conferences this year for the first time. We're actually going to be doing five distinct pitch sessions with startups that are working in each one of those markets. We'll have a main stage finals, the winner from each of those throughout Monday through Thursday. We'll then pitch as part of our keynote program on Friday. Uh, We actually opened the call for nominations this week. You can find that on the Verge Accelerate page of the Verge 20 website. And um, yeah, if you haven't registered already, I urge you to, to check out the Verge website. Our rate expire uh, is, is happening today, Friday. We've got a $99 all-access uh, pass, which is a total steal. Um, our keynotes um, and the expo are free, but um, I, I certainly hope all you listeners out there will join us at Verge. It's going to be it's going to be a fantastic week. Great. Well, Verge is coming up October 26th to 30th, five days about uh, four hours a day in the morning uh, Pacific time, uh, uh, starting about 11 a.m. Eastern time. Check it out. Uh, Go to greenbiz.com and click on the events tab and you'll find out more about that. But uh, thanks for that, Shauna. But let's move over to the Week in Review. So we talked about Verge, but let's talk about, back about circularity because there was a session a few weeks ago at our Circularity 20 conference that uh, turned into an article because it was so compelling. It was from Audrey Choi, the Chief Sustainability Officer and Chief Marketing Officer at Morgan Stanley, who op- on the opening day did a presentation uh, on why every C-suite officer should care about plastic waste. And, you know, in some ways it's it's sort of obvious, in some ways sort of surprising. What I love about it is that she goes around, as she calls it, goes around the table, uh, the, the folks you might see at a, at a, at a board meeting or a senior staff meeting with chief financial officer, chief legal officer, chief innovation officer, chief marketing officer, the folks from, uh, of course, the chief sustainability officer and probably some others, and talked about what each of their roles should be and why plastic waste reduction should be on their radar. I really loved that framework and really shows how this is certainly not just the realm of the sustainability department. Yeah, I loved that too. And I particularly appreciated she had some compelling statistics and 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 visualizations to open up her talk and which are included in the piece. One of which includes, let's see, if we took all the plastic waste currently, you know, in the natural environment and turned it into one plastic bag, it would be large enough to literally bag the earth and a business as usual trajectory in the next 30 years, we would be able to double bag the earth, which, as she points out, is more than $120 billion in economic value every year in single-use plastic packaging. Obviously, we know that economic value is not the only kind of value we should be thinking about when we're talking about plastic waste. But as you said, she then really outlines in very clear and accessible language um, the opportunity that each each role within a company has to, to think about what their role and responsibility is in addressing plastic waste. Yeah. Just for example, chief legal officer, well, why should they be concerned about plastic waste? Well, Plastic waste is becoming a growing concern for regulators and consumers and activists who are all starting to focus their attention. And as a result, there's a, a rapidly evolving patchwork of state, local, federal 
rules that uh, are going to be impacting uh, companies, whether or not they are in the plastic, uh, you know, they make plastic with their brands or, or any number of things that uh, would, would tie into this where they may be affected by standards and, and regulations. Um, and, you know, it's that old thing. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so how should legal officers be tuning into what's going on here? Yeah, and the innovation officers and, and on and on. I, I really love, and what would, what's fascinating to me is that you could kind of do this exercise for almost any of the issues that we talk about, um, you know, from obviously energy and water and waste and toxicity and carbon intensity. All of them could, you know, these days go, as Audrey says, around the table and talk about what's possible here and what's why this stuff is important. Um, but let's talk about something else that's important here, because there was a piece that just really struck me uh, about deforestation um, by two individuals from the Igrape Institute uh, in, in Brazil. It's titled, To Reduce Deforestation, We Must Get Serious About Environmental Crime. And in, in a fairly short article, fairly compactly, they lay out the incredible complexity of who is to blame and who needs to act uh, in order to stem the, the deforestation that's taking place in the Amazon, which as they say, is breathtaking, and the rates are really on track to to have a major, major impact on a climate that's already going to have a major impact. And, and when you go through this, it's like, wow, you know, there's the, this, you know, we talk typically talk about smallholder farmers, um, but it's really a lot of the, the bigger players who were uh, customers of a lot of these these uh, products that are coming, uh, agricultural and, and forestry products that are coming out of the Amazon. Um, and it, it ties into to mining and wildlife trafficking. Interpol is, is involved, the International uh, uh, Crime Fighting uh, Agency, um, how the money laundering aspect of this, um, how even uh, it, the infrastructure players in energy, for example, are, are unwittingly or maybe carelessly uh, helping to perpetuate some of these practices and on and on. It's, it's, I have to say, a little depressing, but it's also just enlightening that we know that much. Now, the question is, what the hell are we going to do about it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, so much to go into here. I, I have to admit, I was, I was shocked to read that currently 90% of deforestation is illicit. And given how much attention and commitments are going from the private sector and, and elsewhere to, to ensuring that deforestation is addressed, the fact that the rates have jumped 55% in the Amazon just in the first four months of 2020, that it's more than that's a 150% increase from last year um, was was shocking to me. And as you said, I mean, the, the, the piece is rather disheartening. It does an extraordinary job at really connecting the dots of how complex the whole, from, from value chains to different stakeholder contributions to this issue. But I was, I was a bit heartened at the end. They ended on a positive note of, of kind of elevating, you know, some of the private sector leadership that's occurring right now as groups are coming together to step up. It sounds like just last year, more than 250 global investors with close to $18 trillion in assets together were called for company, called 
that companies operating in the Amazon basin really meet uh, a much higher standard of commodity supply chain deforestation commitment. So it sounds like there's progress happening. In fact, the piece I was I was um, pleased to see that the piece features the work of our friends at um, Map Biomass, um, who we featured at Verge last year in partner in conversation with um, Planet and uh, and Google Earth. They're doing some incredible work using satellite imagery to actually be able to identify when illegal uh, deforestation is happening. And I guess that's the point, just to close this out, that ultimately with all the uh, government uh, inaction, that this is really going to be up to business uh, and, and particularly the big global businesses that are the customers for so many of the commodities that come out of the Amazon and the financial institutions that are financing these things uh, to really step up. And, and you know, it's not a, the government is asleep at the wheel here or in some ways uh, actively perpetuating uh, some of these uh, environmental problems. And so, uh, yeah, the business, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more businesses being held to account on deforestation issues. Yeah. Well, speaking of forests, I want to transition us, Joel, to talk about our final piece this this week, for, um, which is one that you wrote focused on on regeneration, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I had the privilege of uh, of moderating a conversation actually at our recent Circularity Twenty event focused on regenerative business with uh, the the co-founder of Numi Tea, which is a um, impressively regenerative business, and my friend Amanda Joy Ravenhill, who's the co-founder of Project Drawdown and executive director of uh, the Buckminster Fuller Institute. So regeneration is top of mind for me, but I was so pleased to see you focus on it in your um, in your uh, column for this week. Um, you know, I, I love I love your approach with this piece and and focusing specifically on the language aspect of it, which is super important. You know, I think in many ways, pick your pick your uh, buzzword in the sustainability field of the week, right? Like you know, resilience, regeneration, uh, restoration. I think it's you know it's so important for us to step back and 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 be really clear about why words are in the first place becoming uh, increasingly prevalent. But as you point out in this piece to, to really understand what's the difference, you know, you talk a bit about repair and restoration, you talk about uh, net positive, but you know, from a business perspective, it's so important. I mean, one of the core principles we focused on in our session at Circularity um, is, is you know, the definition that I like to hold of regeneration or regenerative business, which is, you know, products, services, operations that increase the, the capacity for life in every system we touch. And it's really fun to imagine a world in which our businesses and institutions are actually doing that, improving, becoming a net positive contributor to the overall all health of, of the ecosystems on, on which we depend. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I guess the reason I did this piece, and, and I realized that it's my second consecutive week of taking a term that's being used a lot. Last week, it was climate risk uh, that seems to be uh, on a lot of companies' uh, radar. And this this week, it's regeneration. Uh, you see these words, and they just start coming up. And I guess I'm a word guy, and I notice a lot of these things. And I started to realize that that sort of everything was being dubbed regenerative. Architecture, brands, buildings, communities, companies, cultures, fashion, leather, oatmeal, packaging, travel, and on and on. And 
And I started to you know, look at that saying, is this actually, what do they mean by this? And are they using it in a way that is now just synonymous with sustainability? Because as you say, words mean something and we should be using them in such a way, particularly because there's this great tradition in, in sustainability to pick a word and just overuse it. <laughs> and, and to the point where it can mean anything and nothing at all. And so we've seen that with green and sustainable and regenerative is definitely one of those because everything it seems is now being pitched as regeneration and regeneration is critical. I mean, it's a natural part of, it's literally in our nature. It's, it's a part of systems, how we, how we live and work and all living systems in biology, things, if they don't regenerate, they die. And um, it, regenerative medicine is, is critical, how tissue grafting, surgical implants, cell therapy, all that stuff. Uh, but it, this really means something. So I guess my point here was to say, look, if we're going to use these words, we should be using them to say what, what they really mean and, and how it's differentiated. And, and the last thing I'll say on this is that the way we're using regenerative these days increasingly, I know a lot of people are using it as it should be. In fact, I've heard from several of them since I wrote this piece, um, kind of using it as a synonym these days for sustainability or sustainable. Uh, you know, we talk about the, the kinds of things that, uh, you know, are, are pitched as regenerative is just, you know, what we used to call sustainable. In fact, what we call sustainable, ideally, the, the Brundtland Commission definition about uh, our ability to to meet the needs of the present without compromising on the ability of future generations to meet their own needs is really about creating a resilient self-recovering system that's frankly regenerative. So I guess I just want to call attention to that and um, uh, don't know what's actionable there other than just be aware that we tend to use these words as a crutch sometimes and, and it's a lazy way to just sort of say something that sounds cool and may not be exactly what we mean and I think that doesn't serve us well in doing that. Particularly to the extent that regeneration, you know, as I think you point out in the piece, you know, sustaining, stepping back, expanding our aperture, taking a planetary perspective of where we are today, sustaining is not going to cut it, not just for future generations, but for all of those of us alive now. So, you know, I think the kind just to, to close with a couple of examples. Well, first of all, it's it's not it's not as easy as I wish it were to find examples of large companies that are really doubling down on regeneration. I mean, we saw General Mills and their commitment to um, to uh, regenerative ag come out last year. You know, the kinds of things that we saw just earlier this year from Starbucks on being net positive in their resources, uh, Microsoft with their commitment to, in effect, draw down all of the emissions since the company's founding. Those are the, that, that feels like the right direction to me in terms of actually sequestering more carbon, restoring and replenishing more natural systems. Um, but it's so important to be clear on definitions as you're as you're suggesting before we start buzzing about with uh, with these new terms. This summer, Bank of the West, part of BNP Paribas, teamed up with 1% for the Planet to launch its first checking account designed for climate action. 
It includes a carbon tracking tool that allows customers to view the carbon impact of every purchase made. And wanted to hear more about that. So joining me now to talk about it is Ben Stewart, Chief Marketing Officer at Bank of the West. Hey, Ben. Hey. So what led you to want to do this in the first place? I think the first thing that uh, we wanted to do is, you know, as a bank, we've got very, very strong environmental credentials. We're one of the few banks that uh, has restrictions on fossil fuel financing, wood pulp, palm oil production, even tobacco. And we didn't just want the policies to exist uh, in the background. We wanted an environmental tool that our customers could interact with every day. And so we thought it was important that the environmental principles of the bank touch the customer experience on a day-to-day basis. So you launched this about uh, five or six weeks ago. How's it going? It's going pretty well. I can tell you um, the initial, given everything that's going on in the world right now, we're exceeding my expectation in terms of uh, the number of accounts. We have thousands and thousands of accounts. And also what we're finding is that the engagement of these accounts is very, very strong. So I think it's going very well. It's going very well in the absolute, but it's also going very well relative to how distracted everybody is. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased with um, the relevance of this and how, how people have sort of taken notice. So it's still early days, but I'm, I'm pretty pleased. So tell me how it works a little bit. So you, what are the proceeds from a checking account that would go to a, a nonprofit? Uh, so, you know, just like any, any bank product, you know, we sort of take deposits in and then we loan them out again. And so that's no different with a checking account. And there's a little bit of arbitrage or a little bit of uh, margin in that exchange. And we take 1% of that margin that we get when we operate a checking account and give that back to protect our winters via 1% for the planet. So, you know, in some, in so many ways, a banking product is just like any other product. It has a profit margin to it. And we're taking 1% of uh, the revenue of this product and giving it back to the environment. What made you think that there was a market for this? How, how did you assess that? And, and how big is that market? Well, I think, uh, first of all, California is the largest market for Bank of the West. And then close behind that is Denver, Colorado. And we've done extensive research. We've, we did quantitative research in LA, San Francisco, Denver, and Portland uh, with, sustainable, with a sustainable finance concept. And it did incredibly well. Not only did it do well in terms of relevance, it, uh, one of the most important metrics that it moved was it changed what people thought they should expect from a bank when they realized that it was possible for a bank to take a strong environmental stance. So uh, yeah, we've done uh, quite a bit of research and um, there is a sizable market, particularly in California and in Denver for it. Uh, and, you know, across the U.S., I don't mean to say that it's just a California thing, uh, but uh, it, it, there's a sizable, sizable market for a sustainable finance product. And I think just across the board, I think there are so many companies that are starting to tell their customers how this product is made and is it having a positive or a negative impact on the planet? Has there been any blowback, anyone critical of you uh, teaming up with some, some green group? No, uh, not so far. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, we've, we've been, uh, we've been doing uh, pretty strong environmental moves for, for a few years now. And so, no, we haven't gotten any blowback. Uh, we have been prior years, but we haven't, uh, we haven't gotten any related to this product launch. So does this become a foothold into other products and services? Uh, I, I'm guessing this isn't just a one-off. 
No, I, I, I don't think it's a one-off. And we're, you know, as soon as we launched it, uh, we had some other divisions within the bank immediately raise their hand and say, what if? What if we could do this for this type of account? And so uh, we already have a couple of other uh, initiatives in the works. Uh, just as an example, one of the things that we're looking at is imagine a, a corporate card. So at, at the purchasing level for a corporation, um, being able to track the carbon impact at, you know, at, the, at a corporate level. So you can track the carbon difference between a first class plane ticket and a, a coach plane ticket for when we ever get back to traveling. Uh, so we're, we are looking at a commercial level. We're also looking at tying it into uh, a brokerage offering that allows people to either buy carbon offsets or invest in sustainable investments uh, as well. So no, by no means is this a one-off. Uh, it's just the beginning. So what's the potential here, Ben? Uh, I think one of the biggest potentials is to shape policy and move a market. You know, when, when you, most people don't think of banks as anything other than just a bank. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, U.S. banks, they hold, uh, they hold $23 trillion in deposits. And worldwide, there's $150 uh, trillion in deposits. And that kind of money can really move markets because, for, you know, when someone deposits $100 into a bank, $90 of that goes back out into the world and finances things. And some of those things can be incredible. They can be schools, they can be uh, small businesses, but some of those things can be uh, a toxic fracking well, it can be an Arctic oil rig. Um, and so I think it's really important that people start to view banks as a tool for shifting policy and moving markets. Um, uh, you know, consumers are so comfortable flipping over a thing of yogurt and seeing what's in it. They're comfortable flipping over their shampoo to see uh, how it's made. And we think it's really important that people, um, you know, in some ways flip over their bank and flip over their financial equation and really see how is that made and what's it doing, uh, what's it doing in the world. What have you learned about partnering with nonprofits? Is there anything that you could share that others might uh, gain from your expertise? Uh, yeah, my, my, my biggest lesson is go for authenticity and go for legitimacy. And uh, without naming any names, I can tell you um, that uh, we've partnered with some organizations who were probably uh, either riding the, the coattails of the green movement or greenwashing, whatever you want to talk about it. And then you've got super legitimate organizations like Protect Our Winters, Conservation Alliance, 1% for the Planet that are absolutely staffed with some of the highest quality, passionate, most knowledgeable people on the planet when it comes to um, uh, the environment. And we've had some missteps in terms of partnering with uh, some companies who don't have that degree of legitimacy, don't have the degree of quality and the degree of knowledge around the issues sur uh, surrounding the environment and sustainability. And so um, I would say really do your homework and search out agency, uh, uh, nonprofit organizations that are truly, truly um, committed and have, have it deep, deep, deep in their DNA. You know, you talk about the sort of the greenwash uh, charge, and I think there's a number of people out there who say that, you know, you're encouraging consumption here, and then you're helping people, you know, assuage some guilt or offset it, perhaps, in, in some ways. Um, what do you tell them in terms of this being uh, maybe seen as, as a more of a fig leaf than a solution? 
Hmm. I, I would say that we're not trying to encourage consumption. I think what we're what, what this product is designed to do is to because the consumption is the same whether you use this product or not. Is, but what one thing that that changes here is the degree of awareness and education around the impact of your purchases. Um, so I don't think we're looking at the 1% for the planet account as, hey, here, go out and encourage consumption. I think we're looking at this as a way to uh, educate and raise people awareness of the impact of their purchases on the planet and the society, broader society at large. Great. Well, we are the 1% is a good thing in this case, right? <laughs> right. Ben Stewart is Chief Marketing Officer at Bank of the West. Thanks so much for talking to us, Ben. Thank you. Well, one of the conversations we're going to be having at Verge this year is with the Generation Green New Deal, a group of young people who are uh, pushing for the Green New Deal and are advocating for a whole range of policies around that. Shauna, you talked to one of them and you organized this panel. Tell us a little bit about what's going to happen at Verge and who we're going to hear from today. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure over the last couple of months. I've had the opportunity to collaborate with some of the very talented filmmakers and storytellers behind a new project called Generation Green New Deal, which is both a documentary. They've um, also just launched an accompanying podcast um, that really tells the story of the youth-led movement that began that uh, famed day back in November 2018 when the Sunrise Movement, with support from... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, staged a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office demanding for a Green New Deal. Um, and so uh, we're going to be bringing this conversation to life at Verge with a keynote conversation. Uh, Varshini Prakash, who's the executive director and co-founder of the Sunrise Movement. Uh, Julian Brave Noisecat, who's the vice president of policy and strategy for Data for Progress. Um, and Amy Westervelt, who is the founder and uh, executive producer of Critical Frequency, who they're partnering with to do this Generation Green New Deal podcast. So I, I caught up with Julian Brave Noise Cat last week to talk a little bit more about his role in really shaping much of the policy at the heart of the Green New Deal. And um, in this segment, uh, really, you know, invited him to, to kind of demystify some of the misunderstandings around the Green New Deal and also talk a little bit about uh, the role of business and how companies can help. I think that there's this notion that the Green New Deal is this socialist anti-business agenda. And, you know, I think that one of the core ideas underlying the Green New Deal is this thing called industrial policy, uh, which is the notion that the government should intervene into markets, but do it in such a way that sort of promotes sectors and industries that are aligned with uh, the national and public interest. Uh, and so one of the core ideas underlying the Great New Deal is that the public sector should uh, play a role in uh, stoking historic sort of build out of green business and, and technology. Um, and, you know, should play a role in making sure that the development of those industries is you know, sustainable, um, is equitable, you know, maintain sort of a public good and public interest. Um, but the notion that this is all about sort of like nationalizing and sort of command and control economics, I think has 
has gotten has has basically been been fomented by Republicans who want you know voters to believe that the Green New Deal people want to take away hamburgers and pickup trucks and airplanes and all these sorts of things and you know that's I think very very far from from the truth. I mean, in general, we were hoping for bigger stimulus packages and all those sorts of things. We we want to see uh, full employment. We want to see you know, a historic investment in the economy, not some sort of sort of grand scheme to take away things from people. Well, that's a great transition. Let's let's shift a little bit to the to the private sector. How can companies help? How do you see the role of business? You know, um, I am based in Washington, D.C., so I, I primarily see the ways that corporations show up in politics via sort of their K Street lobbyists. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we face is that to a certain extent, many of the major sort of lobbying arms of the private sector, uh, things like the Chamber of Commerce, have to to a large extent sort of showed up in DC politics as opponents of bold and ambitious climate action. Uh, there's actually a very interesting story right now about the Chamber of Commerce being split around whether to to back Democrats in November um, with the fossil fuel industry basically saying we want to back Republicans and everybody else being like, we want to back Democrats. And so, you know, I I think that obviously businesses are a very powerful, organized interest and class in American society and politics. And, you know, we need more voices from business that are, you know, standing up in favor of things like the Green New Deal, of things that, you know, programs for for a deep uh, and sustained decarbonization and adaptation to climate change. You know, I think that right now, the general impression of people is that like, it's Elon Musk, and there's no one else out there. And, you know, I want senators and members of Congress and, and powerful people to understand that there, there are lots of uh, business interests that uh, would be very excited to see action on, on climate change and to show that the opponents of that kind of um, policy and strategy are uh, far outnumbered. Thanks, Shada. More of that at Verge coming on up in the end of October. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. We love and welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Until next time, from all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.